This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Hello and welcome to episode 163 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Owen from washedupemo.com. And today we welcome again on the pod for a third time, Matt Pryor from the Get Up Kids. In this episode, we discuss at length the 20th anniversary of their album, Something to Write Home About. Matt and I discuss the making of the record. We go track by track on stories and lyrics behind the songs and the release of the record on Vagrant. We also dive into the aftermath after its release and the boom of emo that follows. We spend time reflecting on the album's lasting impact with fans and the band that continues to this day. When an album comes out during a time that connects yet today, there are kids that still reference it, shows the staying power of this album. From the opening drum beat of 10 minutes to the guitar pick scrape on Holiday, it all floods back for you and someone out there feeling the same way hearing it today for the first time. That's pretty amazing. Here's to 20 more for the Get Up Kids and happy anniversary to an absolute classic, something to write home about. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. You make this podcast happen. Any amount is greatly appreciated as it goes toward the upkeep of the website, podcast servers, and the distribution. If you want to help out, head on over to patreon.com slash washed up emo. This is episode 163 of the Washed Up Email Podcast with Matt Pryor. Go back to 1997 is when Four Minute Mile comes out, and over the course we we basically went on tour. We did our first tour that summer with Braid, and at some point on that tour we were just like, you know, we don't need to go back to school. We could school is always going to be there. Like let's, you know, try this out for a while. Holy shit! That was when you were like, let's fucking do this. Yeah, I mean, I have a really specific memory of of driving, I believe, to this weird show we played in Rhode Island 
where both us and it was a basement show and we both both bands set up completely and we like traded songs back and forth in this guy's basement and i just remember that uh just kind of being like well yeah let's let's because everybody was going to go back to school jim was in art school and i mean i think i already right had just graduated from high school so he was going to start going to college but it was just you know let's just let's see where this goes toured for like you know a year and a half we got to go to europe for the first time and then it was like okay we want to we were, you know, um, unhappy with the label we were on, and we wanted to, you know, honestly, we wanted to, we wanted to like sign to a major, try and get on the radio, and that and that kind of stuff. And it was like, and we started meeting with labels and everybody that we talked to. Ideally, I mean, at, at bet not ideally, but at best, like the A and R guy would get it and would be way into it, and then the hires up at the label would be like, okay, here's nothing. <laughs> you know, because you're like a new band I've never heard of. And we're like, no, we've we do well. We've been touring for a bunch. Like there's we're not like this baby band. And, you know, we talked to a ton of different labels. We talked to Geffen and uh, we talked to Sub Pop at one point. We did that Sub Pop singles club single, but we could just never make it never make anything stick. But we knew we wanted to to get off a of doghouse because we were unhappy with that whole thing. And so, you know, over the course of that sort of negotiation, we had already started working with Rich at Heart Eight, uh, who was one of the owners of Vagrant. And he was like, well, what if we just do like, we'll offer you guys a really good deal and you can like have your own imprint. And because it was kind of an unheard of thing to go from an indie label to another indie label at the time, like it was, it was almost kind of insulting <laughs> to Doghouse that we wanted to do that. But uh, ultimately, you know, they, I learned later, apparently, John Cohen Morgan got a loan from his parents or something. I didn't know anything about that story. Have you heard that thing about how... I remember asking, when I when I worked there, I remember asking him about that and saying that, you know, mortgaged a house to, you know, fund it. Did you know that specifically at the time? Because that would have stressed me out if I thought this label is, like, mortgaging... We didn't know about that specifically. We knew that, like... They wanted to kind of take the label to the next level, you know, and so they they felt like they needed kind of like a a bigger indie band to kind of kind of do that, like to kind of like kickstart that that kind of machine. And I often wondered why Cohen was so stressed out about money all the time. Like whenever we'd go, because we would get per diems, and we'd go into Cohen's office, and he'd just be like giving us crap about having to give us per diems. And I was like, this is for your label, <laughs> you know, it's just like this is. This is what it costs to to make a record, and and you know, and then I hear this story about how he, his parents mortgaged their house or whatever, and I was just like, well, that I, you could have told us that that would maybe would have been more sympathetic, right, to the finances of it, because I mean, all the stuff that was on the radio was like corn, you know, and right, like, like it was that weird that like that was on the radio, like those things weren't selling, and to have this like subgenre like bubbling. It just well, seems it's, it's this weird thing of like it's it's this sort of like, you know, offshoot of like indie rock and and you know, to a lesser degree like hardcore and, and, and punk rock, at least for us anyway. And uh but it was just kind of this like underground scene that was like I don't know, it was just weird because it was just like we're writing these like we're writing pop songs. You know what I mean? Like we're not this isn't like really weird, obtuse music. It's it's sort of like you could it, in our minds it's like this would work on the radio, right. but radio wasn't 
pl- radio was only playing like new metal. And so these like A&R people would be like, oh, this is like these guys are doing really well. And like people are really excited and they're selling a lot of merch and and all this. And they're hardworking. And, you know, then trying to explain that to the suits, as it were, and just right. be like, uh, you know. So it was it was a really it was a it was a slog, you know. Merch was it, too. Hey, we yeah. did like that. You're right. That was totally a, a metric. Like they sold this much. They do this per head, you know, at the venues. And this well, is how we much didn't, they do. We didn't we didn't do the per head thing at the time, but it was just kind of like at a festival in Detroit. We sold a thousand dollars with a merch when we only had five dollar T-shirts. You know what wow. I mean? Like it's just it's one of those things. Where it's just like, well, things are seem to be going well. I don't know why you guys can't get it. But like <laughs> the kid, the kids are into it. Yeah. You're right. Like switching like that felt like betrayal. And then also to have your own imprint, it's almost like they were taking such a big swing for you guys by well, doing all that. They were taking as big a risk on us because we were taking on them. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we, it was, it was, you know, a symbiotic relationship in, in that regard, which is at least part of the reason why I think it worked, you know, like, cause it was like, we both had something to lose, <laughs> you know, if this didn't work out. Ultimately, it was like we had every intention of like signing to a major. And even after we signed with Vagrant, it was like, OK, we'll do one record with Vagrant and then we'll be able to prove that we can get on Geffen or, or whatever it is. And it just like, you know, it just happens that that record that came out on Vagrant did really well. And it was just kind of like, well, let's just not this ain't broke. So you know, like, let's not fix it. Uh but yeah, it it was it was an interesting an interesting time, and they they were definitely, you know, taking a chance on us. We didn't know how much of a chance at the time. And then that Red Letter Day EP was the finishing of the uh, contract with Doghouse to then do yeah, that. It was, correct. It was part of it, so we had to give them an EP, uh, but a big chunk of money, and they have they still to this day have the vinyl rights for something they're at home about it's 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 been you know so now we have to kind of keep going back hat in hand and be like can we have some records please <laughs> you know like yeah uh and so you know that's not the best and i apparently i'm i get in trouble for talking shit on doghouse but you know it's just it is what it is it's it was a, a difficult relationship right so yeah so that was part of the you know the trend i think that like the fact that vagrant was able to give them like essentially was what was a small major label buyout was the only reason why they would even consider letting us go because we owed them one more record. So then you have to like kind of calculate like, okay, do we want to just do one more record and get out of it, let it run its course? But it was like, nah, man, we've got like momentum. We want to like be with someone who's going to like push us to the next level too. It didn't seem like forever. You know what I mean? Like it didn't seem like you were making an investment in your career. It was just kind of like I – you know, I mean, you you know what it's like to be 21. You don't really think about the next 10 years. You just think about the immediacy and the immediate the immediate moment was just like, no, this is working. Let's just let's do this. But yeah, it was like a it was like a good I want to say nine months to a year of like us trying to get a new record label and it just not working. And we worked with we talked to Mojo Records for a while and they had a really great guy who understood us and, and got everything but then like their president didn't get it and same thing with sub pop it was just like sub pop offered us less money than doghouse had given us and it was just like well come on man we can't go as prestigious as you guys are we can't like go backwards you know and through those nine you know nine months or a year were 
were songs starting to form? Yeah, we would like, I would write stuff in my apartment and then we had this terrible rehearsal space in downtown Kansas city. That's now like a, a high end, like loft or something. <laughs> of course. But it was, <laughs> but it was like this, like empty building that would rent out different like office spaces and there was no bathroom. So it was like, if you needed to go to the bathroom, you either had to, your three options were to either leave to pee in a bottle or to pee in the like drinking fountain, you know, and I'm not saying that we ever did any of those disgusting things, but like it was, it was pretty nasty, but it was like, it was a very, we would, you know, practice almost every day and, and, you know, just hash stuff out. And that's where those, the majority of that stuff was written. And I also, I remember actually, I, I kind of remember this. I got my bag stolen with the first like book of lyrics that I had written for the record. So I had to kind of remember, uh, like what my, like where I had some of the lyrics I had to kind of rewrite because I couldn't, I, my lyrics got stolen. Wow. But, but it, you know, so I don't know, maybe, maybe some, but the thing is like, so I'm, I'm diabetic and I had my medicine in my insulin in there too. So I think someone stole my bag because it had needles in it. Wow. And and I was just like, well, I hope you don't shoot that up because that'll just fucking straight up kill you. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was around the time, you know, like 1998 into 99, and we were writing a bunch, and, you know, that's when James came into the picture, and, and we started practicing with him, and, and, you know, we just, eventually, once the, the Vagrant thing got sorted out, because, like, then the idea was, like, Robbie and I had talked about, okay, so if we're going to get a major label advance, we're going to start our own label, and uh, put out the anniversary's first record because they were our friends and it was just like this is what we want to do with our you know advance and then so when we didn't sign to a major label and we signed to vagrant we kind of backdoored <laughs> our our label idea into the into the deal with vagrant and so that's where heroes and villains came from and that's the our, our little imprint which i don't even know if they still put that logo on those records anymore I mean, they changed their they changed their logo, and then when they announced their press release, did you? I loved their vagrant press release. I talked about this with Rich um, when they announced that they were like rebranding and and signing to BMG. Did you remember the press press release at all? No, I don't remember. I don't remember. I think I was I was I was not paying attention by that. It point. didn't list any of the bands from like that era. Like you guys weren't on it. Like it was oh. it was like vagrants like history. It like I was like. Hey Rich, where's the get up kids on this? <laughs> He's like Yeah. <laughs> it was like, man. We get that we get that like past alumni status now. You <laughs> but know, you like, weren't even on that. Like it didn't yeah. even have hot rod. It it was it was really funny whenever uh, I remember wasn't that when they had like Edward Sharp and stuff like yeah. that? Like wasn't that around that era? Yeah. yeah. I think maybe they were kind of like rebranding away from the the emo thing or or whatever maybe i don't know i don't don't that's exactly what they were doing yeah yeah but but i now i'm trying to remember because i was at tvt for a time and i remember vagrant was distributed through tvt and i remember seeing a bunch of heroes and villains stuff um Mm -hmm. and like a seven inch of yours with a white one with um rocket yeah and 
I just always was like, you know, I was like, that's badass. Like they had like, you know, their own thing. And it just seemed like it felt big. And that's coming from like a fan perspective then of not knowing you, not knowing you know anybody just being like, oh, wow. Like it, it felt it felt like a major swing if it, it, it didn't feel like a little indie. Um, and maybe that was huh. perception. Maybe that was, uh, but it, it, as a fan, it's like, Oh wow. That was the response. Not well, just I from that to, seven. I inch. To, if, if I had to guess, I mean, it's kind of like, it's around the same time that like, you know, epitaphs, like, you know, I mean, what is, isn't the offsprings record, the first indie yeah. record to like be platinum or something like that. And it was like, you know, Vagrant and Epitaph were, you know, relative contemporaries. Epitaph was obviously a much bigger label, but it was like, you know, Southern California kind of kind of thing. So it was kind of like, well, if they can do it, you know, on that scale of being an independent label that acts like a major label, then then why not? Why not us? And I think it is it's it's sort of like projecting confidence to a certain degree. I mean, obviously, you have to spend money, but it is it's interesting that that actually worked because on from the inside looking out, it was just kind of like, no, this is the next logical step. We're just getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Yeah. And it was just it was like, we wanted to have our own label. <laughs> so we wanted to put out our friends' bands. But that ends up feeling like a community. It, it's not, it's not, it didn't feel, again, this is fan perspective, not label guy later looking at it. Like, it was like, oh, wow, they're like putting out their friends and that's cool too. And who else is from there? Like, who else? Like, mm-hmm. it, it felt, it, it gave a, a inquisitive or i i felt like i was i was in on something while you were doing that well that's good i, I guess i don't know <laughs> I, I could have been completely clueless i i you know, definitely those years you know people were asking me what i was listening to um because all the people that i was dealing with at labels were uh completely clueless they were still in the new metal phase uh um, oh, okay so they were surprised. Like, what do you mean? What are you listening to? And it's like, I don't know, man, this is the show down the street. <laughs> it's interesting that like you wouldn't, cause like, I, I don't know if I understood the kind of like, like scene and community aspect of it until we were out of it. You know what I mean? Like it was sort of like in that moment, it was just kind of like, no, we just do what we do. You know, like we just get in the van and go to the show and like, we're friends with these bands, but like, this is just, we're friends with a lot of bands. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it wasn't, I don't know. It's interesting to like, now that we're at this point where we're kind of like collectively all looking back on this like kind of moment in time that it was like, oh, this was like a community. This was like a a scene, but we were so like insular. You know what I mean? Like we had to get out of Kansas City and then basically everywhere we went, we called our van the Kansas Embassy. You know, and it was just kind of like, we're, you know, it was just us against the world. It didn't, it didn't. And even when we started bringing in our friends bands like the anniversary and Kofax. Kofax. It was just kind of like, okay, so now, now it's us and you guys against the world. It's not, you know, like, it's just like, you're, you're part of our, our gang, which I, I, I don't know that we necessarily felt that way with the vagrant thing as a whole, which is why we didn't do the whole vagrant America thing, that tour. Cause it just kind of felt like, well, we just, we just want to be the get up kids. We don't want to be like the vagrant band, you know, like, I mean, you know what I yeah. mean? Like it just like, so, which I, I look, looking back on now, I kind of feel a bit of remorse for it just because it, it, it was kind of, uh, you know, a rising tide float. What's that? How's that phrase go? A rising tide floats all ships. Was, I, I always mess those up like math. Yeah. 
Everybody out there knows what we're thinking. About. I know, but I'm I'm supposed to be good at metaphors. All um, all boats rise. The, it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's just like if we were stronger, like collectively, and like yeah. that scene grew because of there were so many good bands that were so willing to work and and you know and we're really connecting with people and yeah I see that I see that now when you're you know when you're twenty twenty two you're just kind of like no no just just us <laughs> you know like. When did you know you had the songs done? When did you feel like you guys co-produced this too? So like, it wasn't like you were just kind of sitting back, like you weren't we taking we this. Didn't, we didn't know this dude with this guy, Chad Blinman that we recorded with, like he had worked with face to face and he was friends with rich and it was kind of like their guy. And we're just like, Oh, uh, okay. You know, like it was just kind of like, and so I remember I was thinking about this the other day. I remember that we brought our sound guy, our touring sound guy with us. He stayed with us the whole time we were in LA making the record. Cause we were just like, you, we know, you know what we want to sound like. If this guy's not pulling it, you know, not, not making it happen, then you need to like step up. And he wanted the experience anyway, but it, it was kind of a, a bit of a leap of faith because it was sort of like, I don't really know anything that this guy's, it wasn't like a producer. We had like longed to work with for a long time, but it, it ended up working out great. And he's a super sweet guy, but it was just, it was kind of like uh, going in somewhat blind. Right. That's how I remember it anyway. And going to LA to record, like that wasn't your home. There were new things to experience. and Well, we had this like the most like rock star experience followed by the most like not rock star experience of just like, okay, we're going to send a tour bus to come pick you guys up to bring you to LA. And we're like, it's our first time on a tour bus. It's like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh god. <laughs> and we're on this tour bus and we drive all the way to LA, and then we get there and then we crash at our friend Kevin's house for six weeks, like sleeping on the floor, sleeping on couches. Uh, he had like four other, four or five other roommates who I don't really know if they knew we were going to be staying there that long. <laughs> and then, like, we paid, we paid, you know, Vagrant paid for the for the space, but it's like. I don't know if they knew we were going to be there for six weeks. And then it, at one point there were a bunch of other house guests that showed up and it, it was just, it was just kind of funny, but it was just like, Oh, and then our friend Kevin, who, who, you know, it was his place. He left and went on tour for like a month. So we were just like at his house with his roommates, you know, I mean, granted we were at the studio for like 10 hours a day. Right. No, but you come home and it's like, Hey, Mm hmm. <laughs> It was weird. It's <laughs> so weird. Uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, but it was also just like we were so just focused on the task at hand that it's just kind of like by the time you come home, it's just like, all right, let's just have a beer and watch South Park and then go to sleep, you know? And because uh, it's 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 amazing how exhausting being in a recording studio can be when you're you're just sitting on your ass. You know, if you do like a really long road trip and you're yeah. driving all day. And you're just like, why am I so tired? I didn't do anything all day. Like being in the studio, it's like there's no windows. It's all recycled air. But you're just like focused on what you're doing. And it's it's just draining. I mean, it's fun. It's really fun. But it's, it is draining. So I don't know why like like Vegas felt like like you're you can't see what time it is. Like you're, uh, you're yeah, just like being, being forced. A, like being to, in a casino. You're right. Yeah. yeah. You're like forced to like do something. You're compelled to just spend money. <laughs> Yeah. 
So you're saying making a record's like having a gambling addiction is basically what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> All right, cool. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Just figure that out. You know, again, it's like if it is uh, certain songs, if it was action in action or – you know, the if it was like, I'll catch you. Was there like times where you're like, oh, these are really like, I mean, I know you guys are like, these are our next songs. These are great. But was there any other like feeling of like, like you said, this could be on the radio or this could be it during or no? Was it still? What was it? Like, you know, I don't think you really have that perspective until after the fact. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't, I knew I, I liked the record. I knew we all liked the songs we were writing and, you know, and, it was like, these are the best songs that we can write at this point in our lives. But I don't know that we really knew it was going to like connect with people the way that it had until it did. You know what I mean? Like it just like, I don't know. I I have a really high, like, or, I'm sorry, a very low tolerance for bullshit. And so if, when, if people at the time, if they were like, oh, this is monumental, I would just be like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> like, leave me alone. Like, and so I don't know if that's, just the vibe that I gave off. And that's why nobody told me that. But, uh, you know, I remember Ellis coming out and he heard it and he was like, it's really good. And I was like, well, that's high praise from you, you know, and just like, you know, playing it for people. And it was just like, yeah, this sounds like the next, then, you know, it, it felt like we got it right. Like it felt like, like four minute mile is, is very much like a very like first, it had so many handicaps to it. We were young. We did it in two days you know, we, we didn't know what we were doing, but, and it's very raw sounding. And I think that's one of the things that people like about it, but we very much came home from making that record and going like, Oh, what have we done? <laughs> you know, like we, we didn't, you know, it was just kind of like, well, this isn't what we really wanted it to sound like. And then when we made something at home about it, it was like, no, this is, we're going to stay here until we get the fucking thing right. And, uh, and that's what we did. And that's why there's like, 10,000 guitar tracks on it because it's just it's slightly overproduced in that sense did you feel that that it was I, I saw one thing that you said you'd wish that you had tuned a half step down that's just because I'm old and I have to scream all the time now then you and were fine just, with it you didn't realize oh, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know how else to sing I just knew that it was just and that's a joke I, kn I know that it's like actually I don't think if I think if we tuned a half step down no one would notice but uh, I think the endless amount of shit that my bandmates would give me for even bringing something like that up wouldn't be, wouldn't be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> but also too, I feel like, I mean, this, uh, the anticipation, you know, again, for this record and having that pressure, did you feel that in the studio? Like this is again, I guess you weren't, you weren't feeling that it was like, no. I want fucking big guitars yeah, and what what were some of the things records that you mentioned like to them like was it was it were certain ones at the time that well, they could have the a reference with point the, with the guitars it was the Foo Fighters second record is it color and shape color That's and their, shape yeah yeah and it was like okay so like these guitars are massive and I think we read somewhere that it was like fifteen guitar tracks layered on on each other I'm like okay we gotta do that we're gonna do that other than that it was it was mostly like you know I mean we really liked Pinkerton as as everyone in our age group did you know and it mm -hmm. was just like but i just remember like that's the foo fighters thing is very much where the whole uh what our friend eddie calls on the intro to holiday the one pick slide to rule them all because um, <laughs> it's a, and then someone was like yeah it's a double pick slide and i was just like 
is that weird? And they're like, yeah, no one does that. And I was just like, oh, we thought it sounded cool. <laughs> like, it's like, well, you know what's cooler than one pick slide? Two pick slides. Right. And then also just like from touring and knowing that like the the fast songs, the the, the more rocking songs go over really well live, but then also wanting to have – you know, balance to it. I keep forgetting that that song record has slow songs on it other than, uh, other than catch you because long good night like, needs to get thrown in the set more. It's just a long ass song. Well, <laughs> you know, like it, just take, it takes up a lot of space, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I like, I really like, especially the, the bridge of that song. I like quite a bit, but, um, twinkle, there's some twinkle riffs in there. Twinkle riffs. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Matt, it is funny. Whenever I open my mouth and I like explain something, I'm just like, I was like, I've been thinking this for 20 years, but has Matt? And usually, like I said, I've been calling them twinkle riffs and you're just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What's a twinkle riff? There's like the three note, like, like three or four note, like repeating arpeggio. Like it sounds like twinkle, twinkle. Like it just okay. sounds. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think of everything from a from a rhythm guitar perspective. So I don't I a lot of those auxiliary things that like Jim and James would would add on that are are kind of like what they're they're would like you just I'm block tra- that out uh to a certain degree. I mean just cuz that's cuz to me it's just it the the stuff that I am good at is like the the foundational kind of stuff like the like the arrangement and then the the melody and the lyrics and then like all the other auxiliary stuff even and I'm not, I don't mean to diminish everything else because it, it's the reason that it all works but it's like I don't think about the rhythm section stuff I know that like those guys have that on lockdown and you know it's just like and I don't and you know even when we made the the last record it's just like okay this is like big empty space here think Jim this is, gonna, this is going to be a guitar solo so you better fucking <laughs> Make something good, <laughs> but yeah. So like, whenever all the all the kind of like the like little counter melodies and stuff that are on guitar and, and keys, especially like I, because I, I don't. I also when we play the songs live, I don't usually hear those in my mix because I'm really just trying to hear myself sing to make sure I hit the notes right. Do you have any favorite lyric lines? I mean, there's the the ones. It's like we're loyal like brothers. I think is a good line, even though it does sound like a hardcore song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, like it sounds like a straight edge anthem kind of, you know, I mean, I'll catch you. It's just like, it's like, that's a very like personal song that like seems to have connected with people. And so like, I don't know, I think it's a, it's a good way to express trusting your significant other. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it just, uh, what was the other, you know, the one I don't like is, uh, in close to home. And this was even something they made fun of me for in the studio when we were making the record was, How's it going close to home? Like, you know, I don't know where that you should be scared. Maybe learn from mistakes. Uh, what's it's something about what is that? God damn it! Now I gotta go through the whole story. Well, in my head. you know what's funny? Yeah, you we can totally look it up. I mean, that's that's yeah, where we have editing. Make your own destiny. So it's supposed to be make your own destiny, destiny, but, and it sounds like make your own destiny, but. And so it was like they were uh, like the way it's phrased. And so like there was a sign on the studio door that said, make your own destiny, but B-U-T-T. And I was just like, fuck you guys. <laughs> it makes sense in my head. 
I like that they can fuck with you. That's that's when you know your friends. Well, sometimes we get pretty mean with each other, but that's that can we I can take that right that particular ribbing. I'm 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 really not. Uh, I mean, maybe I was then. I'm I'm definitely not now. Like sensitive about lyrics. Like it's just kind of like, does that work? You guys good with that? And like, yeah. Or, eh. And okay, I'll do another. I'll do another pass. I mean, it's it's just like a level of of being comfortable with what you do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I write a, I write a lot of lyrics. <laughs> so sometimes if they don't. If they don't fire, then I'm not going to take offense if someone tells me that. I wonder if I was different from that when I was that age. Like if I would have been really like, this is how it has to be. Because I did kind of have that attitude making that record. Like it was like, we're, we're doing this right. You know, like we're going we're gonna to stay here till it's done. What were some issues that came up during it? I don't remember us having any like major speed bumps. I remember we had to like hang a curtain up in the in the vocal booth to do the vocals and just cause it's awkward when there's like six people watching you sing, you know, I mean, not like, not like at a concert, it's not awkward. Well, I mean it is, but you get used to it, but just like people watching you record is kind of strange. Um, but no, I, I think for the most part we were, we were pretty focused. I remember kind of having debates a lot about what songs to cut cause we had too many songs, you know, and, and then like, we were going to do this, that, uh, punk eighties record. And we did, we did the new order song and James was singing it. And we're just kind of like, I don't know, this doesn't sound like us. So then we just did the cure song, like just on a whim, like, I was like, this might work. And it turned out to be like one of the cooler covers we'd ever done. And it was just, but yeah, I don't, I don't really remember. I mean, we fought a lot, but we fight all the time still. But yeah, it was it was it was pretty. We were pretty on the same page about stuff. If you I think yeah, so again, sometimes like I don't know, fighting sometimes gets through passive aggressiveness very quickly, or any argument or disputes. Like if you kind of like fight about it and you figure it out and you move on. We're we're not we're not really passive aggressive. We're just like straight up aggressive with each other (laughs) and and mean. There's nothing passive about it. Like um, between everybody. So everybody's like that. Yeah, for better or for worse, yeah. <laughs> Who is like the mediator? Is there anybody that you need to go to to get to somebody or is it all direct connections? Is it just five way like <laughs> fuck you, fuck uh, you. <laughs> yeah, kind it's pretty much it's pretty even. Maybe that's why it works. I, it's it's some kind of dysfunctional Voltron. I don't know. Like it's just sort of, you know, we we it's it's a bunch of Type A personalities that are all coming together and just that's, you know, only the only the best ideas survive because <laughs> they you know like, and that's not even that's not entirely true. It that's where the kind of like we're loyal like brothers thing kind of makes sense to me. I mean, even though the popes are literal brothers, it's just like we we fight like that and we something about it. But it works. And then, you know, I hope it's not because we fight that it works, you know, like that, that seems unsustainable, but it's definitely always, always been there. Jim spit on me on stage one time. Wow. That was a pretty big argument. I want to play a Jim song. He want you want to play a Matt song. I don't, I don't even remember. (laughs) 
It doesn't. I'm sure it was really important. I'm sure it was. Yeah, I'm sure it was so important. I thought it'd be fun to go through the track listing and mention something that maybe people wouldn't know or a little fact or like a note that something somebody could go listen for. Holiday, you mentioned sort of the pick slide. So, uh, yeah, one pick slide to rule them all. And then uh, one of the things that I remember is like, uh, I don't I don't even know if I can explain this, but you know, like, I think it's, it was like a fat records band kind of thing at the time where it's just like the back a back a back a back a back a broom. And there's like a pause and then it hits again. It's like, deca, 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 boom, dan, it. it was just kind of this, it was like a, a drum fill thing that I really wanted Ryan to do at the end of that big long fill at the, in holiday. That's like the, the whole, the, the bridge part. And he, and they were just like, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that. And, and he, and they, he and Rob were right. <laughs> but it was just kind of like, no, do that, do that thing that the, that they do in the screeching weasel song. And they're like, no, screeching weasel sucks. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. And, uh, but yeah, that one's just very like, um, so I don't know if that answers that at all, but it's just, it's a very, it's, it's like full throttle, like the whole time. Like there's not, there are dynamics in it, but it just, they seem really minimal to me. I guess it does kind of break down at certain points, but it just feels so, so like young and full of energy, kind of like almost like not knowing when to put the pauses in there. You know what I mean? The song was like a drag race. Like there is just, yeah, it's like that's red, yellow, saying, green, yeah. go. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like as, as the opener on the record, as this like statement, like it just. Well, once it, you, once you put that, once you put that big ass pick slide I know. at the front of it, it doesn't fit anywhere else. Right. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> even in the set now, it's like, it's either the first song we play or it's the first song in the encore. That's what I was like, about to say. Only, that's the only place the only you can put it. It works. Yeah. And we've done the same thing with Satellite on the new record, which is like, well, this doesn't work anywhere else. <laughs> you know, like, but I you think, know, it's. I remember that listening to Satellite the first time being like, this, it reminded me of the holiday start. It was like, oh, this is like, we're, we're, we're here. I kind of like yeah. that. It's a good way to start. It definitely like, it definitely like sets the tone, you know, of, of, of what you're, what you're getting into. And I mean, in the song, the the lyrics are kind of obtuse. I think like it's it's very like teen. I mean, I think I was twenty twenty one, but it is very like kind of teen angsty. Like I'm mad at a friend of mine because he moved away. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like it's it's such a like I don't know. Like I, I listen to like it, you know that kind of like it's that sort of like emo trope that all the songs are about like girls. Yeah. Or like breakups and stuff. And like, there's not really any songs like that on this record. Like it's all about relationships with other people. Right. Like not about, not about like. I'm sad about a except, girl. Yeah. With the exception of like catch you, which is just a straight up actual love song. Like it, it, it's not a lot of like heartbreak kind of, kind of stuff. I mean, I guess it is. And just like more with friendships and parents and stuff. But although I don't know, I don't 10 minutes might be a love song for all I know. Like, <laughs> It might be. I think it is. In a roundabout way. Uh, I can't actually go quickly going to 10 minutes because it popped in my head. I do a commute now in Los Angeles and it, there's a sign that tells you how far away you are from downtown. And I always get bummed when I turn the corner on the, the, uh, the freeway that it doesn't say 10. It says like 25 or 15. Like I want it to say 10 and like, I don't know. It's like what I look forward to. Like that's how we, sad. We seem to have, we seem to have a lot of like those little like verbal, uh, 
like things that we actually just say on a regular basis, like I'm down for whatever. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know, whatever you, I'm down for whatever, whatever you want to do. And like, and they're like, Hey, you get that? You're down for it. And I'm like, Oh damn it. You never should have put that in that song. I know. Yeah. And anytime like, it's 10 minutes from downtown. Anytime anybody sees anything that says 10 minutes, you know, it's just, or like some really clever, you know, someone who works like someone who works at the club is like, Hey guys, five minutes to stage time. Five minutes to fall. You know, it's like, all right. <laughs> You're hilarious. It's you are the you are the server at Applebee's that has never heard like those jokes said at them about like ordering food. Like it's that same thing. Yeah. <laughs> or like Whole Foods, more like whole paycheck. Right. You know, like, exactly. That's and so my girlfriend says I have ten jokes, and that's probably one of them. Um, and so she'll just kind of like say like, Hey, that's one of your 10. When can you retire a certain one? And so I get to like <laughs> rotate another one in, but I get to repeat it. Um, so in you 10, know what the, yeah, the only one, is, oh, sorry, go ahead. I interrupted you. No, no. I just gonna say, I was trying to see, maybe I could, maybe I could, I'm trying to see if I can pull in the, like the 10 minutes one, um, see if I can add that into the rotation. We'll see. I think you, I think you can retire that joke. <laughs> I've heard it. The only one of those tropes that like we get with like people making fun of our name or you know that like we've been playing the kids are all right by the Who is like our walk on music lately yeah. just because it's just kind of leaning into it is that we stayed at this guy's house in Indiana and he got up for work and he was like he wanted us to get out of his house and he just starts going get up kids up get out of my house and it just that's the only one that I that one still makes me laugh. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, I would, I would, I would listen. I'd be like, okay, you, you made a good joke. I'm out. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, fine, we'll leave. Uh, anyway, the action in action. Uh, mm-hmm. Whose decision was it to sing into a, a telephone? Uh, I don't remember. I was in a band, so I didn't even think about it at the time. But I was in a band in Kansas City that was called Secular Theme. That was like a noise rock band when I was in high school. And the singer of that band had taken, well, actually, one of the other guys in the band had done it, but he had taken an old landline telephone and somehow affixed uh, XLR, like, mic cable to it so you could plug it into, like, an amp, and he would sing through this telephone. I feel like we just showed up. Oh, because it was supposed to be that we were we were all collectively breaking up with this girl in the video, and it was just, like, talk, like singing to her on the telephone, which now that I look back on it, I'm like, what, what was this? Like, it was like... Are we all dating this girl? <laughs> like it was just like kind of strange. But uh, whose idea yeah. was that video? Uh, I think it was Adams, the guy who directed it. I, all I re- really remember is that like we were at the end of we had finished the record, where we were finishing the record, we were mixing it, I think, and I was so just done. I just wanted to go home, and like we're in this like tiny bedroom with all these really hot lights, and just like, and then I ha- I hate making music videos, like, and that's the first time I ever made one, but. I hate the whole like, all right, now pretend like you're rocking out because it's just it's like the most it's I'm not an actor. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like I'd, I'd rather you just get live footage from a show where I can actually be into it. But, yeah, I just I just remember it was really, really hot. And then I also remember that Jason Schwartzman lived across the street from where we filmed it. And at one point he like wandered over and was like, what's going on here? And I was like, hey, I know who you are. Did he know who you guys were? Oh, no. No one knew who was we that. Were. Was that Rushmore era? Yeah, so that was ninety nine. Oh, so that was him at his peak. <laughs> I'm choking. So action in action is like, uh, it's kind of a nonsense song because it's sort of like 
random things that I was thinking about at the time. And we had these two friends from from Louisville. <clears throat> you might know. Do you know who Mark Brickey is? He was in the singer of that band, The Enkendals. Yes, Enkendal. of course. Yeah. So he's he and his friend. So he would go by Snake at the time. He was called the David Lee Roth of of punk of like hardcore. Cause he was just like a wild, a wild, totally straight edge guy, but like just completely wild. And, uh, he had a, like a cohort, this guy, Chris Holland. And so at one point they got tattoos that each had banners that said action on them. Cause they were action in action. Like that was their, that was their, like <laughs> their two man gang. You know what I mean? And so it was just like, this is this, this kind of like nonsensical song that doesn't really have like. A, it's kind of a me, just a, a long meandering thought. It's just like so we don't really have to call it anything that makes any sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? So just like let's name it after Snake and and Chris. And so, and then he's now he's like now everybody thinks that I got this fucking tattoo because of your song. And I'm like, well, no, you, we, the song's called that because of your tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> that is so great. I now I love knowing that now. It's like two got action and action. That that's uh, oh that's great. Yeah, it's it's like uh like Cagney and Lacey or yeah. something or you know Holmes and Watson like it's it's cuz they they would just get into the the weirdest wildest shit but I can't even think of what it would be I just any anybody who remembers Bricky from from that era just either loves him or hates him cuz he was just such a goofball. Wow. And then it's anything else from the video? Like I always thought videos then were kind of ridiculous because there wasn't many outlets. Like you kind of had one swing with, you know, uh, MTV two or, uh, one of those mm-hmm. like weird music well, video then, like, shows. Much, much music in Canada right. would show stuff. And, uh, fuse. I mean, I, I don't, yeah. Fuse. I don't, didn't Actually fuse, fuse wasn't later? there yet. That was later. Yeah. But it was just kind of like, I don't know. You, you, at the time it was like, you make a record, you make a video. And it was like, there were so many like hungry young, filmmakers and especially in like LA, the LA area who were making like punk rock, you know, music videos. They, the, a lot of the videos from that era look a lot alike. I think the only reason ours looks any different is cause it's got a telephone in it. But, um, <laughs> it is sort of like band plays and rocking out in confined space while some other mayhem ensues, you know, and it's just kind of, which is most music video. I mean, it was at the time. It's it's an all right. It's a fine video. Adam's a really good director. Uh, he did some other stuff with us later down the line. Um, he's a, he's a talented filmmaker. Does anybody have that video anymore? Because the videos online are complete garbage. I think I have a VHS copy of it, like the the like final edit that they sent to us. I think I have it on on VHS. And then I think I have our when we appeared on 120 minutes. I have that on VHS too. Like my mom taped it <laughs> and <laughs> saved it for me. Uh, Valentine, slow jam, got a nice build up. Anything thoughts on yeah. that song? I think of it as being a, a ballad, but it really does kind of build up at the end of it. And then that was the first time we tried kind of doing the like really layered vocal harmonies and like call and response and like vocal. Cause it's like, I don't know, six vocal tracks by the end of that song going at once. And what we used to call the Matt and James choir that we did a couple times, like on Out of Reach and stuff, where it's just like we just kept adding harmonies to stuff to kind of make it sound like a like a, a more of a choral. 
effect. It's kind of one of those lines that is really corny, but when you sing it, it doesn't seem as corny. You know what I mean? Like if you just like say, "Will you be my Valentine?" It's kind of like, kind of Charlie Brownish. You know what I? But for some reason, like no one seems to notice that when you sing it. For me, that song represents like a break in the set list. It's because it's kind of a breather because I don't have to scream it. But it does get pretty in- intense towards the end of it. That's why I feel like it just it, it starts this like right. You think it's going to be this slow song about, and it just has this really beautiful build. And I think that's what's kind of I don't know. Well, and I think when you when we were doing like the the track sequencing, it's kind of like all right, we came out with these two big rock numbers like right off the bat, and like we need to like everybody needs a chance to, like catch your breath, and you know it doesn't have to be like a one eighty, but it does have to like you know if we're gonna. You want it to be like a, a journey, you know what I mean? Like you don't want it to be like just all at once. And I feel like Red Letter Day is that sort of back up. Mm-hmm. Well, Red Letter Day was one of two songs that were on that EP that were supposed to be on the record. The other one's Forgive and Forget, which we ended up not putting on the record. Uh, but it's on like the international version of it. Because remember when that was a thing when like, for Japan, you have to have two extra songs, and then for Europe, you have to have two extra different songs than you had in Japan. Germany, same thing. Yeah, yeah. It was very so annoying that, for collectors. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, so that, that's what how what Forgive and Forget ended up being. Because if you look at the Red Letter Day EP, it says that the songs Red Letter Day and Forgive and Forget are from the next album. Right. Which I don't think we had, had a name for it yet. But then we just, and then it was like. Do we have to put it on the record if we put that on the EP that it's going to be on the record? And it's like, nah. <laughs> um, Anything about that yeah, song? I mean, you know, it's it's kind of about our, our relationship with with Doghouse, and I think that's kind of an open an open secret. You know, it's just like feeling like we we weren't being cared for in that relationship, and so. It's pretty piss and vinegary, you know? I mean, again, I'm 21 at this point, so (laughs) I can make petty things sound really important. The lyrics are punchy enough that it becomes like a fist-in-the-air kind of of song. You can sing it when you're angry. Right. Out of reach. I think, I feel like this is the slow song at the high school dance. When you ramp it up again, it feels like the end of side A. Is it the end of side A? I don't know. I might be wrong. No, it probably isn't. It's probably like, no, you're right, 10 minutes. Looking back on it now, I don't know that I would have put that song there. Because it's like, you go from Valentine. I probably would have been like, oh, we're going to go out of a slow song into one rocker and then to an even slower song. Right. But I, I mean, I, 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 guess it, I guess it works. I, the thing I remember about that is, I, so I have this guitar, and this 1960 Gibson that uh, I bought from my father-in-law, and he bought it new. So it's only been in our family. And... Uh, I brought that to the studio to record that song with it. And this guy, Dale, who was the, I don't know exactly. He was sort of like the assistant, I guess. I'm sure he had a more meaningful title than that. But he was like, no, your guitar, your acoustic guitar strings are too new. No, you want to have newer strings on a guitar because otherwise they sound old. And he's like, yeah, but for a song like this, you want it to sound old. <laughs> like you want it to sound like an old blues guitar. And so he went home and got his acoustic guitar that had he said he hadn't changed the strings on it in like 15 years or something like that and it and that's what I ended up playing on the record wow but he was right cuz it just it it kind of sounds more like rickety and 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 
jankity, for lack of a better term. And then also we got to do, again, with the kind of like the choral like harmonies and the the call and response and the ah, that like, you know, we really milk live <laughs> now whenever we play that song. Try and get. I, I like it when the crowd does it too soon and you give them shit. That's always fun. Well, it's one of those things that it, you, you know, it's one of those like songwriting tricks. Like you don't want it. You got to wait Ed for Rose it, man. Ed Rose used to say it can't be Christmas every day. <laughs> like you got to, you know, if it was Christmas every day, then Christmas wouldn't be special. And so it's like, if you're just going to do all your little studio tricks every single time, then no one's going to. And so like, it is one of the things you're like, okay, how big a fan are you? Do you know that it's only in the second chorus or do you? And so I don't know. I, <laughs> I like late, it. Lately, Jim's been like the hype man for that song. And he'll come on stage and he'll be like, all right, Atlanta, I know you're not going to let Fort Lauderdale sing louder than you, are you? And <laughs> boo, it's like total like. Like, you know, P.T. Barnum kind of like pandering to the audience of like trying to get them. And then they're always like, fuck that. And they like sing it really, really loud. <laughs> You're not going to let Philly beat you, are you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, or, yeah. Exactly. Like every city's going to have their like rival. Oh, yeah. Jim's probably really good at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's good at riling people up. Riling people up. Including you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole nother story. <laughs> right. That's another podcast. <laughs> uh, ten minutes. Uh, how excited are you to play it again? Uh, I actually love playing ten minutes because it means the show's over. <laughs> 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 All right, everybody. Thank you so much for Lauderdale. You've been great. <laughs> you know what I, I, I think? <laughs> I think live, I think people forget that song until we start like as soon as they hear the drum beat they're like oh shit yeah i love this song like i don't know it's just like kind of this because like by the time we get to that point because it's been our closer forever and it's just like by the time we get to that point we've we we, we've played all the songs off of something we're home about that you think we're gonna play you know what i mean like you're not like you're not lacking for anything and then all of a sudden we play that one and they're kind of like oh right one more <laughs> it works every time it's, it's so far knock on wood <laughs> uh it's so far uh i remember that one because that was like a really we wrote that really early on and then on one of our first tours out west a friend of ours was going to i don't know if it's an audio engineering school specifically but he had studio time and we did a demo of that song that song in ann arbor we did demos of wow uh with our friend Jared. And then we ended up, is it, th- is it those two songs that are on the sub pop thing? I know 10 minutes is on the sub pop seven inch. So that was like, Oh, those, yeah. Cause those are the versions that are on Eudora are the sub pops, but there's like a demo version of it from even before then. But so we had recorded by the time we got to LA, we had already recorded that song two other times. So it was just kind of like, all right, we're just going to blaze through this. You know, like it's the same way with, with Dottie. Cause it was just like, we had already recorded it before and it was already like part of our set. So we knew it really, really well. We weren't like making it up in the studio at all. So I don't remember a whole lot about recording. I just that it was really easy. I don't even remember if Jim had trouble doing his vocals or not. I just love, I just love that that drum beat anytime like I play it at our DJ nights or it's like even, you know, someone plays it in a car. It's just, you instantly know it. You instantly, it's just, a, I, I love that, that it's, it, that song has that kind of feeling from the moment that it starts. 
it, yeah, it's kind of like I mean, and I'm not trying to compare us to to Queen or anything, but it's kind of like when you hear "We Will Rock You," yeah, the beginning of it, where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, I like I know what this is just from the drum beat, which is I, I think is fairly uncommon. Like maybe if you heard like a guitar riff or something like that, yeah, that you might signal something out. But uh, yeah, that's that's the reaction that we get too. That's why it's the closer. That's, that's why it's the closer. <laughs> the company dime. Off, it's like off time. It's kind of I I I wrote down chilling. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, to me, it's just like it's it's very much we had discovered Wilco by that point. <laughs> it was just kind of like to me, it's just like our first attempt at writing like a like a almost like Americana y kind of kind of song. And for the longest, so James had this like uh, thing he was playing on the the Fender Rhodes that was just kind of like we kept calling it Catfish, and it was just sort of like. Like he would play this character of like an old blues man called Catfish, and he would like play that piano riff, and somehow that, and so that song, when we would talk about it, like we would just be like yeah the the Catfish one, and like oh, okay, and then like we would kind of like and we we kind of built that song. We did a couple of days of like pre production in L.A. at S I think it was at SIR. It was at some rehearsal studio, and that song kind of got built. Uh, in those sessions but that whole thing's about our our experience with the whole major label thing and all the all the different record labels and stuff and also just about feeling like we kept meeting these people and some of whom we're still friends with who were like these great a and r people who really got us and you know would have been a, a dream to work with but they ultimately weren't you know pulling the strings you know right. they which is weird to think about now that it's like in the the whole point of like having an A and R person is that you're supposed to like trust their instincts, kind of, you know, like it's magic that they get signed. It's unreal that there's something's released, and then even bigger is it, it like connects on a large level. Like that's so hard. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of variables to go wrong that whole process, and so yeah, I mean, it's it's a song about a relationship, but it is very much like rooted in the music industry, and it's kind of like. I remember at the time kind of thinking like, is this too like inside baseball? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just like this is this is literally a song about me complaining about the music industry. Like so then it, it, it's kind of like, OK, well, let's just make it vague enough that it just sounds like a like a breakup. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, like it's 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 about the music industry. But then every guy comes up to you and they're like, I play this one. Uh, I broke up with my girlfriend. And you're like, cool. <laughs> Well, it's amazing how people misinterpret things. If you write, if you write lyrics that are vague enough, like I don't know, it's it's what is the thing? It's like whatever anybody comes up to you and says, "Hey, is this song about blah blah blah?" The answer is always yes. yes. You know, like because if that's what they got out of it, amazing, yeah. right? Which I, which is something I, I, I've only really come to like later in life. Like I think I, at the time I was very much like, no, I wrote this song about this. This is what it's about. It's my song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I wrote it. And and now I just kind of I've been taken to like whenever anybody asks me about what a song's about, I just kind of been saying like, well, it's about whatever you want it to be about. I can tell you what I was thinking about when I wrote it, you know, but it's like it doesn't mean that it has to be about that for you. It can be about whatever you want. I think I understand that more. Like I think I understood that as a fan when I was younger and I when I when we f- first started putting records out, I don't. I think I lost, kind of lost track of that, and felt more like selfish about it, and more like these are, these are for me, and if you like them, cool. But if not, 
they're still for me. And now I very much feel like I've kind of come back around to it and just sort of like, you know, th- this is really, it's, I, 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 if I wrote it for me and it's just like, then I've done my part. You know what I mean? And it's just kind of like, and now I feel better. And so now it can be whatever you, whatever you want it to be for, for you. And, um, but it is also, it's like, you know, people connect with things at, at, you know, different points in their life. It's good, bad, or, or, or whatever, or even just marking the occasion, you know what I mean? Like, and I, I think there was something that was a lot of people, at least over that course of that, like 99 to 2001 or whatever, that like uh, we we really connected with a lot of people that were going through similar things that we were, and you know it's still I mean it's it's crazy that it's like my daughter's friends like that record, you know what I mean? Like they're they're like we played a show and they're like we didn't play Holiday tonight, and I'm like it was a free show. <laughs> I don't want to play Holiday. <laughs> I mean, that's when it's like it gets to that other generation. You know, it passes the, I don't know, there's only so many records do that, Matt. Well, may, yeah, I guess so. I, I don't know. It's 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 something that I'm, I'm kind of more aware of now. I mean, I, I don't know. At the time, it's just kind of like, I don't know, maybe this is just for us and, you know, our friends. And then the next generation's like, I mean, but also we've been called, no offense to your brand, but we've been called emo for 25 years and it was never like a positive thing until fairly recently <laughs> you know what i mean like, it's just like so it's just sort of like well maybe we're just going to be called the you know that that time when rock and roll was wimpy <laughs> you know what i mean like it's like 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 yacht rock or something like that you know what i mean i mean we've we've we talked about this i just i never thought it was uh like a, a, a wimpy thing and i that was always well, so weird. I, that's, that's my baggage from like kind of high school era of like, you know, it was, I always tell people like it was always, you know, at the time it was always preceded with like fucking, like fucking emo kids, you know, like it was, it was irritating, you know, trying to make headway in like a really like hyper masculine, like hardcore and punk rock scene. And it's just kind of like, yeah, we're just these nerds with glasses. We really like Weezer, <laughs> you know, and we really, <laughs> you guys like synthesizers. Right. Um, which is, you're not going to have that on the hardcore record. Of course. No, no. As an, an observer, it's, it's interesting and it, it makes me, it does make me proud that people still resonate with it and that another generation is, is resonating with, with it. I don't know if it's cause I'm, you know, they're, they're friends with their, their, the kid of the guy in the band. But, you know, who knows? But My apology. Not me on my apology to the last thing I said. The next track, my apology. I uh, accept your apology. I accept your apology. <laughs> fittingly, the next song. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I remember, like, writing the... I was listening to a lot of Archers of Loaf at the time. And I remember kind of writing... It's kind of weird. It's got choruses, but it's it's fairly nonlinear. Like it's it's it doesn't really follow like a typical like verse chorus verse chorus like song structure kind of thing. And that mm-hmm. was kind of just the way it came out. And it was just kind of like, well, this is cool. Let's just keep it like that. But uh, it was just this idea of like I'd had a a couple of songs that were specifically about people that I was either you know angry at 
or hurt by or or something like that. And I, and I always tried to, you know, make them vague enough that they wouldn't figure it out, <laughs> you know, that the song was about them. Mm-hmm. And a couple of times they did. Uh, and so it's kind of this, like, self-reflection on, like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. And then, like, this is kind of part of my job that I, like, write. It's like a, it's like a one-sided argument. You know what I mean? Like, if, if you and I are having an argument and I write a song about what a dick you are, it's like you don't really have a whole lot of ways to retaliate or to respond to that. You know what I mean? So it's it's kind of like this kind of acknowledgement of like, uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I shouldn't do that. Right. Or I should be better about making it vague so you can't figure it out. <laughs> Talked about I'm a loner, Dottie, a rebel. That one, that, that one was quick. Yeah, I mean, we had already recorded it. And the version we did uh, with Ed at what would become, at Red House, what would become Black Lodge, it, it's got this, like, we kept calling it the 311 snare drum. So it's, like, that really, like, high-pitched, like, like a piccolo snare? Yeah, like, it's kind of like a piccolo snare. It's not, but it's kind of like that. Or, like, the helmet snare yes. drum, where it's just, like... And so they had it I'm, so tight. Stanier, yeah. I was just thinking about John Stanier today because of the new Battles record. Um, but his snare would be so tight. Well, he would break like three of them a night. I didn't know that. The, the story that I heard is that he would, so he would tighten his snare drum head with his drum key, and then take his drum sticks and put them around the drum key to get more leverage to further tighten. Like he was like, wow. And that he and I, I, we saw Helmet in, oh, geez, what year would that have been? Like 96 or whenever. Which, which I mean, record? I'm a stupid fan of theirs. I mean, probably, it was probably like the, the end of the meantime, like before Betty. Oh, so but, uh, let's see. Oh, so that definitely like 95, we were all 96. hanging out. So like 95, 94, 95. 94, 95, like 95 yeah. Uh, but it was Helmet, the Jesus Lizard, and Therapy. Remember that band, Therapy? Of that course, Irish with band? the uh, question mark at the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Therapy? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but I uh, I just remember seeing Helmet play, and he literally did ch- have to change his snare drum out a couple of times. And his drum tech was just right there, like, ready. Like, they had it down, you know what I mean? But it just, like, yeah, it's... So, yeah, so the, the first version of Dottie has, has the snare drum sound that's kind of like that. Which was the style at the time. <laughs> that's such the style at the time. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. I love I that's that I have such an appreciation for that song now. That's a song that's just kind of like, you know, a, a kind of about an incident that was just like someone having a one, you know, a, a, a mutual one night stand that then becomes more than that. And then it's just like such a stupid, like, you know, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, like, it was a very, like, I don't know, that seems like a very 90s thing to me, to, like, have, like, a movie quote. I mean, no offense to Max, but, like, say anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just, it just, it, that was, I don't know, I don't know if that's just, like, a, a, a teenager, 20-something thing to do, but. I mean, remember um, every hardcore record had, like, a horror movie intro? Yeah, or, like, sample, like, you yeah. know, like, it was weird to see Jawbreaker again and have them actually still do those, like, the biv- the samples that are on like bivouac and stuff it was just like Hemingway or Kerouac like reading a book or something you know like some weird like well this is obtuse <laughs> you know what I mean? like it's just but it it was it's what we did back then Tom 
That's what we did back then. I feel like uh, that would have been a better name for the podcast. It's what we did back then? Yes. Because <laughs> every story could have started like that. I always like the it's something that Grandpa Simpson would say was a. Uh, he was one time in the Simpsons when he was like, you know, and I was wearing an onion on my belt, which was the style at the time. <laughs> and I've always just been like, it was the style at the time <laughs> to have a pickle to have a piccolo snare sound. It was the style at the time. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. That's going to be used now from now on. Uh, not a piccolo snare, but the, that, that phrase. <laughs> uh, the uh, long good night. We talked about that a little bit, didn't we? Yeah, I mean that's just it's a it's a kind of dark brooding. I mean, I guess it's a ballad and that it's slow, but it's another one that we kind of built in LA at the like rehearsal space in the studio, and it's got that kind of like really long winded, um, loud bridge part in it, which is a very, very Deweese kind of thing. He would always write these like long pieces that would have like i think it's it's like a, a circle of of five different notes like it's it's just like slight i mean he he was coming from coalesce so everything was like slightly a little bit weirder and then it kind of ends with this big kind of screamy thing at the end of it which i don't know how would that happen like if he if you had that like the the basis of that song or you or jim or and then he would come in how would like something like that, which really is a huge part of the song, be able to fit and then also work around what you had done. How would that happen? It would probably be something if I, I mean, for that one in particular, it was probably something like, I think I had a a chorus melody and then like the slow songs are always the hardest ones to write because they're, they're fairly boring to play. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, you have to really find some way to make it interesting and so I think we we kind of like had this like kind of groove going or whatever. And then this like the chorus I thought was strong. And then it was like, okay, it needs like a bridge. It needs some sort of like transition. And I could just, I mean, I, I can't literally remember it, but I could totally see him just like, he'll just kind of like, wait, what about this? What about this? And like, nah, nah, nah. And then be like, what are you doing? And like, and he's just like, well, well, this, this and that. And then, and then go here and then go here. And we, and we would try it. And then it was like, to me, that that part of that song sounds like like mineral kind of, where it's just like a lot of like building and building and building and building and building. You know, it, it, it isn't really our style necessarily, but it, it seemed to to work in in that regard. But yeah, he would it would just kind of be like he would just like kind of try something, and and I mean that's how all anything that we do, it's all you know. There's no bad ideas in in brainstorming kind of thing, and sometimes it would just be like no. <laughs> but you sounds, know when it fits, right? Even if it was a weird thing, you can just did you guys feel it? Like, oh my oh, I know you would, but would there be a, a moment where you didn't think it would and you would play it a few more times and then be like, oh wait, this does. Well, yeah, especially at that time because it was kind of like something that was a little bit like left of center a little you know what I mean? Like it was it was, you know, it's not a weird time signature, but it is a it is a kind of it's not straight like A B C D like it, it it's got it's got more um more going on in it and then it also has that kind of like cool like building piano part in it and then so then it's a matter of i remember when we were recording that like getting the because the drums are very like rudimentary like 
you know, paired like paradiddles and stuff like that, like like real like like because Ryan's doing so it's it's like a polyrhythm, right? So it's like uh, so the band's doing one two three four one two three four, but then Ryan's doing one two three 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 one two three, and so it does this, you know, you meet on twelve, right? Because that's where three and four meet, and so it was it was kind of a tricky. It was a new concept for us. And it was very much, I think, coming from James's like uh, background in in a more like mathy uh, kind of thing, which you know uh, is not how we necessarily learned how to write songs. There's no polyrhythms in the the sweater song. No, there's not. <laughs> um, let's see. Close to home feels. It felt when I first heard it felt like four minute mile. Oh really? Like I feel like it was like this. It, not a leftover, but it just seemed like it had like a piece of it somehow. I no, Tom, you're completely wrong, you idiot. It's fine. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> I think it's a bit like riffier than that. Like the cor- like maybe in the verses, it's a bit yeah. four minute miley, but like the chorus has this very like ju- like almost like a chunky like hard like But yeah, that's that's someone like so the we always had this like kind of weird complicated relationship with Kansas City love letter slash warning <laughs> to our hometown like of just like uh you know we had to like leave here to like make something of ourselves you know we had to leave this place and it can be really insular and like really like small town like in in a lot of ways and so yeah i don't know and then just like kind of like talking to like younger bands like what i don't know if i was talking about like we should learn from other people's mistakes or if they should learn from our mistakes but it's kind of the same thing but then at the end of it it's got this sort of like self-referential well maybe i'm wrong about all this like i'm making these kind of like like kind of proclamations about about stuff but then at the end of it it's kind of like maybe we had all you figured absolutely wrong you know like and it's so it's kind of like I don't know. I, I, I sometimes when I listen to the lyrics on a couple of the songs on this record, I'm just like, you kind of like reversed your point of view at some point in the song. Interesting. Like, it, like as it's like as I was writing the lyrics, and like I remember like sitting at this house that we were staying at, and just kind of like really like laboring over stuff, and just being like, yeah, but maybe I should include like a, a the other perspective, you know, as 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 well, as opposed to just this kind of one like unilateral thing which i don't think i don't think i was cognizant of it at the time but like looking back on it now it, it does there are a couple times when it's just like i mean my apology the whole thing is admitting that i'm an asshole <laughs> you know like <laughs> it's literally called my apology at the time as you're right you're like my apology you know like writing it out like aggressively like insular and then it's now the you're most, like, oh, the wait. most important thing in the world yeah <laughs> That is that is one thing about having like teenagers now is like it's just like man I must have been unsufferable when I was that age because it's just like everything is so absolute like everything is so like this is this is now this is the thing and this is like the most important thing and I'm just kind of like nah. Remember it's your not. parents would be like, I mean, it would be the most epic thing ever that you didn't get to do one thing on that Friday night. And it was almost like there wasn't a Saturday. Like, no, well, this is it. And now, right? What I tell people whenever anyone asks me if I have advice for for younger bands or people starting off in the industry, is that like, there's this sense of like, this is your one shot at, at various points. 
in your in your career if you're going to try and make it as a musician. But it's not true. You know what I mean? Like it is, but it is that same that same feeling of like when you're a teenager and you're like this 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 moment now is everything. Oh, we're going to play for this one A and R guy at Brownies or something like that in New York. It's just like, oh, that sucked. We just ruined our whole career. It's like no, no, just keep like nothing. Nothing is that. It's it's it, it, there's life is full of a lot of opportunities like that. On but. Reddit, they'll post sometimes on a motivation subreddit. It'll be like, you know, this author that's like really famous started writing at 40. Or, mm-hmm. you know, this actor started acting at 50. And like, I think that's Morgan Freeman. Morgan right. Freeman. You know. Yeah. And like, and he, I, I and love he played that. God. Yeah. So you can be God later. Like, what? It, yeah. I just, I, I kind of like that. That it, it, you're totally right. Like, you don't need to, th- those moments. But again, you're not how do you explain that to a younger band when they're pushing no, they everything? Have to, they have to figure it out for themselves. I mean, that's, I mean, that's one thing that I have learned as a parent is like, you know, you can try and steer them in the right direction, but they, you ultimately can't, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You know what I mean? Like it's just, they have to, they really do have to figure it out for themselves. But so, I don't know how we got on that topic. That sounds like something positive on Reddit. Are you sure you were on the right, the same Reddit? That was on like, mo- I think it was the motivate, get motivated. When I was on tour with with Dan Andriano and my daughter was on tour with us, and I would make the damn Daniel joke. Yes. Dan, and from backstage, I could hear Lily go stale meme. And <laughs> <laughs> that was a really sweet tour. It was fun. Uh, it just it was the, the I thought the audience like the 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 appreciation for your daughter. Yeah. She stole the show. And then it was like, everybody be like, your daughter's got an amazing voice and you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey Matt, great set. Do you know where your, your daughter is? I just want to ask her, you know, like, yeah. it's, it's like moving along. <laughs> Last song. I'll catch you. Mm-hmm. Uh, classic as of so 20 do you years. Know the, do you know the whole story of that song? I don't. You want to know it? Of course. Okay. So, in 1996, I think it was, whatever, uh, my wife, who was then my girlfriend, and I took the train from Kansas City to Chicago to go to the Metro to see Jawbreaker. And it was uh, after, it was the Dear You tour, like right before they broke up. Uh, they probably had already intended to break up. <laughs> they were just <laughs> fulfilling their obligations. But uh, it was Jawbreaker, The Smoking Popes, and Fluff at the Metro. And so, you know, it's this kind of like big trip that we took. We took the train. We stayed with some friends. And then uh, so then a couple years later, I guess it would have been 97 or probably nine, 97 or 98 when we were playing at Metro and Get Up Kids were. And it was like we were headlining and it was sold out. And she was living in Boston. You know, we would talk all the time. I could tell she wasn't telling me something like she had like a a plan in mind. And we just got into this like conversation, like this conversation. I'm just like, all right, you don't have to tell me what it is, but I just need to know that like, you're not like breaking up with me or something like that. And she's like, no, I'll, I'll catch you. Don't worry about it. And so then that kind of just became like our little like code in what's the word I'm looking for? Like just something that we would say to each other. The thing was, is that she was coming to Chicago to surprise me at our show at the Metro. And it was like everybody in the band knew about it and they were all in cahoots. So like 
have this like secret thing of like, cause that was where we had had this like big, you know, date that we had gone on. And now my band was getting to like play the same stage. And that was a really big deal. And, and so that's why there's a line in the song about remembering jinx removing, which is about going to see jawbreaker. And so that's, that that's really sweet. Yeah. I love the, is, I, I think those little pet things that people say to each other, and I think the I'll catch you is really sweet, and that you remembered that, and now I'm sure people do it because of it. Every show, someone tells me that that was their first dance at their wedding or, or, or something like that, you know, or they walk down the aisle to that or, or something. But I mean, it's just, it's an honest love song about me and my wife. So, you know, it doesn't really get any more honest than that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, right. It's just relatable, I guess. I think it's worth mentioning the artwork because that's sort of turned into something that is iconic. And when you see those two robots and, you know, people have obviously, yeah, it's kind of our, it's kind of our accidental logo, right? You know, it's kind of our, like mis- our misfits skull or our Ramones crest. But honestly, that was like literally like both the name of the record, which Jim came up with the name. And it was just kind of like, as with most of our records, it was like, all right, unless we can think of something better than that, then we'll just use that. <laughs> That's how we named almost every single one of our records. With the artwork, it was just like this guy, Travis, that Rob and Ryan and Jim went to high school with. And it's like, you know, he's he's a really good artist. And, you know, and I, I kind of knew him from around town and like bands that he had been in. And he had like three days just like we need artwork and we need it like this size. And like, here's the record. Go for it. And that's what he came back with was these two like lovebird robots. Wow. <laughs> and I just remember at the time being kind of like, yeah, all right. Okay. <laughs> it's fine. You know, like I wasn't like wild about it or anything, but it, it, it has, I, you know, I, I do like it and it has just kind of become, you know, everybody's tattoo now. But yeah, it was, it was very much just kind of a, a, a last minute, like, oh shit, we need artwork. I believe Robbie has those paintings. Like he he ended up buying the, the paintings from Travis. Oh, so Travis painted that. Yeah. Wow, that wasn't like a computer thing. No, no, it was a painting. Uh, it was two paintings rather, and he he had to paint them because the paintings themselves are the size of like the LP jacket because it was really just like he made it to scale. And I don't remember. I guess I don't know how they even do that. Probably like f- take take it to us somewhere and get it photographed or scanned or uh, whatever. Yeah. But they don't think they. I don't think they had really great scanners then. I think he really did have to take it somewhere to get photographed. Wow. Yeah, we have the on a the on a wire artwork used to hang up at the lodge, and I think Ryan's got it in his garage somewhere. But Robbie's, Robbie's got the the something right home about ones. We're all just waiting for Travis to become the next like Shepherd Fairy, and then we're all gonna like completely cash in. <laughs> Everybody save the artwork. <laughs> We've all we've all got tons of his stuff. Like when he was moving to L.A., he was like, oh, "I'm getting rid of all this stuff for like you know these like drawings that I've done." And I'm just like, "Okay, I'm just gonna take as many of these as I can." <laughs> the release of the record, it, I just thought it was interesting enough. The same day as "Very Emergency," which I thought was funny, is "Promise Ring Record." Um, do you remember anything from the release day or the release week? The rumor that I had, we had this sort of like unspoken rivalry with the Promise Ring, like that was not aggressive. I don't think at least it wasn't on our end. And I, the rumor that I had heard is that their record was supposed to come out. The very emergency was supposed to come out the week before 
and they bumped up the release date to be on the same day as ours, almost as like a in a competitive way. Really? That's the rumor that I heard. Oh, I, I like know. that spicy rumor. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's true or not. But and there's one person something. to figure it out. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's probably. I, well, I don't want to name names, but um. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean that, that record's. I love that record. That record's great. I was. They were a really big influence on us, both like musically and just also. They were the first band that we hung out with at like like punk shows that were like into pop music, like just like just like straight up like listening to top forty like dance music and stuff like that. And they're just like no shame about you know like no like oh this is my guilty pleasure. It was just like no this is great. And I was like oh okay, we can totally that's we don't have to pretend that we don't like this stuff now. One thing I definitely want to mention, just we're talking about sort of the beginnings and like reviews and stuff, is that insane Pitchfork review. Pitchfork's never liked us. They've never given us a good review. I mean, they've. They'll, I mean, two point out of ten. Yeah, but again, that was part of the whole the That's emo is a did. derogatory. I know, it's the whole like emo is a derogatory kind of thing at the time, and you know, it, that doesn't surprise me at all. Like no, no one, I don't think that record got good reviews ever, <laughs> you know, until, until recently, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was kind of like, and it doesn't really matter. People are coming to the shows. People seem to like it. So that's what I always thought was funny about some of these and where I was definitely not, I mean this again, Pitchfork wasn't the, what it is today. It wasn't, if it was, it was starting to be though. It was starting to be like this, like super hip like tastemaker kind of thing so it doesn't surprise me that they didn't like us the scene that we were in wasn't considered cool Definitely in that not. regard you know but yeah i mean it's it's you know who's laughing now exactly brent <laughs> <laughs> the other f funny thing i thought was you know definitely not funny but just the the record came out, the reaction, crowds, like, what do you remember from kind of that swing that we talked about at the beginning? Like, you probably saw the fruits of that pretty soon when people started hearing it. Well, I mean, for us, you know, as an insider looking out, it was it all felt pretty gradual. Because, I mean, we toured on that record for almost three years. And it was just like, you know, the first, the first tour that we did when that record came out, we drove up to CMJ um, with... Burwanger in the van with us and uh because the anniversary we're gonna play you know this vagrant showcase it was us no motive the anniversary and reggie and it was just this and then we started this tour that was like 72 days long and it was like it was so long because we wanted to take a tour bus because we were just like we we want to you know move up to a level of of comfort and the only way we can justify the expense of it is if we play three times as many shows as we usually did so that was yeah that was that was like the longest tour i think of we've ever done and that was that was a year like that year we played like 250 shows that year from when that record came out i definitely do remember though by the time the Weezer tour came around or we opened for green day for a couple of weeks or our first trip to australia it was just like, I was already just like, you know, we were two years in almost. And it's just like, I don't know if I want to do this. And they're like, you can't turn down opening for Green Day. And I'm like, fine, you're right. You know, but it, is, it was very much, it was a very long time. But we were, you know, we were young and we wanted it really bad. And people were responding really well. So how did that feel? 
I mean, this is going to sound bad, but it felt normal at that point. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was just sort of, I don't know that I f- really fully appreciated just how unique it was until, until later. You know what I mean? Because we, everything, everything was happening so gradually for us. Like it wasn't like we got a song on the radio and then all of a sudden our shows went from a hundred people to a thousand people. It was like, you know, over the course of three years, they went from a hundred people to 600 people, you know, like it, it, it wasn't. And it was like, and we were working really hard. We were on tour, you know, 200 plus days a year. So, um, yeah, by that time, I think it, it had just kind of gotten to be, yeah, this is just how, how it goes. You know, looking back on it now, it is, it is a very unique, um, experience. And I think it solidified those fans. Cause I think those people that went then are still coming. Most of them. Some of them. Yeah, when they can afford to get babysitters, yeah. I definitely call it babysitter core. There's a lot of bands yeah. like that. You guys are one of them. We used to make, like, that's another one of Jim's things. It's like, ah, you hope you're paying the sitter extra tonight. We're going to play a bunch more songs. <laughs> <laughs> they never seem to mind. No. Because we save all the old songs for the end. Does he work on his lines before the show? Does he figure out which ones? Or you guys know what he's going to say? Oh, I don't. I he he's just winging it. <laughs> as far as I know, <laughs> to say to say that we know what he's going to say is not true. We have never have any idea what he's going to say. <laughs> I always thought there was like some uh, you you could have like a uh, like a wink to the sound guy to like drop his mic down when he's about we to did, say something. We had we had made jokes about that in the past that you just have like he just that our sound guy had to just hover the mute button. But we, you know, we never really did that. Hey, man, we'll swap it out on the next song, like in his in ears or something. Like we'll swap it, it out real quick. Don't don't worry it, about it. <laughs> it is kind of it is kind of because when you have like, and this was even more confusing when we did the radar state thing, which is like when you have two different like people who are you know being the front man or more, that it's kind of like you know if there's like a intro to a song and the gym will start talking and then I kind of have to wait for him to finish talking so i have to like kind of keep an eye on him because it's just like i need you to finish talking before this vocal start <laughs> and then depending on what kind of a rant he's on it, it might it might take a while so but it, you know it's he's a he's he's a showman i love it any other thoughts of you again thinking back at that time period or you know 20 years now on this record and its impact or even just well i was thinking about this and i i didn't i was thinking about this and i didn't really post anything about it just because i was in the midst of traveling but like we just got done with a a two-week tour that was 12 flights in 14 days we flew to malaysia and we flew to australia and then we had to fly to every show in australia and then we flew to japan and then we flew to hawaii and it's just like there is no way in hell. I mean, it, as tired as I am, as jet lagged as I am, and has how kind of a brutal of a schedule that was. There's no way that any of us would ever be able to do anything like that if it hadn't been for this record. You know what I mean? Like four minute mile, we got to Europe, but it was just like that was because of like the hardcore scene. In you know, we're playing like youth hostels and stuff in Europe, but like this because of something we're at home about, we've been able to go all over the world like a lot <laughs> you know what i mean and it's just um it's it's kind of it's it's impressive 
if if I if I do say so myself, and it's it's meaningful to me that people still still like it and that it still resonates with people. Yes, even if I'm completely fucking sick of it. But I, you guys put that work in. I think that those 250 dates, those those Weezer shows, those Green Day shows, like there's kids out there that are still like became super fans of you. And I don't know. I felt like it was. It, you're right. It was the right age, the right time to have the record. And it's still providing um, people. Joy. Well, I think it was definitely Egan. Egan used to call it lightning in a bottle at the time, and how like you can't really recreate lightning in a bottle. And but the thing is, like that definitely that encapsulates that specific time in our lives, in a lot of people's lives, in like the late '90s and early 2000s. But that that moment's over. You know what I mean? It's been over for a long time and people still like this record, you know, even though it doesn't like for you or for, for people our age, it like might represent like a really important time in their life. But for like the kids that are practicing in my garage, it's just like, they just like the songs. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like they just, and they, and they resonate with it. It's, it's not really about like a scene or, or anything like that. And I think that that is the true kind of like, uh, the kind of like amazing thing about the the longevity of of this record is that it, it seems to have transcended that that moment as 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 kind of like magical as that time in all of our lives was it it you know it, that was a long time ago and now people still like the record so you know I I'm 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 very we're all very proud of it and you know. We still play a lot of those songs every single night. When people shout out, play 10 minutes in like the crowd, I'm like, yeah, we will. Just chill the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> or like hold up the set list and be like, it's, it's right over here. It's yeah. right. <laughs> That's really cool. Is there anything else you wanted to mention or thoughts that I can like weave in that as you were thinking about this? This record is the reason that, that we are still able to play music for a living but then also it affords us the luxury of being able to go and make new music which is ultimately what's it what's the most important thing to me and so at least for the time being this is this has been like an important enough thing to people that it it lets me continue to make art and that is the kind of like real miracle of the whole thing in my mind sing along